0: Those of you who have become regulars on these occasions won't find this very easy to believe, but the aprons have arrived. We've been waiting for these on a daily basis since the beginning of Rare Book School, which began several years ago at the beginning of July. Welcome to the first lecture of the sixth week of Rare Book School 1984. There will be a reception immediately following this lecture in room 523. There will be a lecture, there will be a lecture immediately following this reception. <laughs> Welcome to the sixth week of Rare Book School. There will be a reception immediately following this lecture in room 502. I had a friend once who had three months in which she had nothing except to learn French before she rejoined her husband in Paris. She had to be here because she had three engagements over the three months that she absolutely had to be in New York for. She took the ultimate crash course at Berlitz. She had breakfast in French, and she had lunch in French, and there were movies in French. And By the end of three months, she spoke French very well indeed, so well indeed that when she got to the customs inspector at Orly. They gave her a French-language customs inspector at the airport instead of an English-language customs inspector. Now, what she meant to say was, please put my baggage on the ramp for Paris. But over and over and over at Berlitz, she had practiced, please put my luggage on the ramp for Marseille. Marseille! <laughs> And somehow or other, it just happened. This is the 16th Book Arts Press lecture in the past five weeks, and the reception has been in 523 every single time until tonight. The reception will be in 502 tonight. Just follow the crowd and the cart. And the lecture will be in 523 where you presently are. Yes? What kind (laughs) of (laughs) introduction is this? I'm not finished yet. This, this comes under the category of announcements. There, there, will be, there will be copies. There will be, I suppose you call them copies for sale, both of the Rare Book School T-shirt, not the one I'm wearing, which is last year's T-shirt, but this year's, which is better, and of the Rare Book School apron. The aprons are $8 a piece. The T-shirts are $5 a piece. Uh, through Teresa Salazar, who's sitting on the couch there, uh, for those of you who would like to purchase one as a memento, Of this occasion specific in general now then our lecturer this evening is Michael Ox who is librarian of the music library at Harvard University who will I hope be pleased to come back since he uh, was a graduate student here on two occasions in the 1960s and 70s and it's a great pleasure to welcome him here now and to give him a book arts press apron
1: Okay. <laughs> Thank you. It really is a pleasure to be invited to speak here, particularly since I didn't graduate the second time I came. <laughs> I'm going to Somebody remarked that I was the mo- I was the most overdressed person in here, so if you l- allow me, oh, that. In mounting exhibits, the first question librarians should ask themselves is, why? There are many possible reasons, and only some of them have to do with vanity. One reason many librarians give for mounting exhibits is that their libraries are saddled with these exhibit cases that look just terrible when they're empty. Now, that may be true, but a simpler solution to that problem would be to remove the cases once and for all. Now, in thinking about reasons for exhibiting, I began to realize that there was a prior issue and that of goals. I arrived at a short list of four goals that I believe librarians should have in mind when mounting exhibits. Goal number one, advertise your holdings. Most research libraries, and that's the kind of library that we're, uh, that's going to deal with the kind of stuff that we're talking about, most research libraries do a very poor job of advertising. Listing your holdings in a card catalog, or if you're very modern, in an online catalog, is not an effective way of letting people know about the highlights of your collection. To do that, you need to bring the material out to your patrons in such a way that they can't help but become aware of it. Related to advertising is goal number two, publicize recent acquisitions, whether these consist of a unified collection, for example, as in our case, Randall Thompson's Nachlas or Nadia Boulanger's Americana material, or if it's a a miscellany of items acquired in a given time period, the last five years, say, or since the last exhibit of recent acquisitions. Goal number three, educate your patrons. Some librarians think of libraries, and especially of rare book collections, as mere repositories of materials, and themselves as curators only. The more modern and enlightened may regard their libraries as information centers and the librarians as dispensers of information for patrons who have questions. But we can serve our public better if we also sometimes liken ourselves to museum curators and use exhibits as a primary mode of education. And goal number four, educate yourself. The better educated you are about your collection and its subject matter, the better service you'll provide your library's patrons. The best way to learn something is to teach it. In fact, some people say it's the only way. Preparing an exhibit designed to educate others is an excellent means of continuing education for librarians. Last March, I mounted an exhibit at Harvard University's Houghton Library entitled "Music, Musical Americana in Harvard Libraries. I'd like to share with you my list of reasons for undertaking the project. And we should differentiate between these reasons on the one hand and the four rather altruistic goals that I just listed on the other. We'll see that the reasons can really be thought of as opportunities to pursue one or more of the four goals. That is, advertising holdings, publicizing acquisitions, educating our patrons, and educating ourselves. The exhibit managed, I think, to combine all four goals. Reason number one. The Sonic Society, a national organization devoted to the study of American music and music in America, had chosen Boston as the site for its 1984 annual meeting. Uh, A brief footnote on that, of the 200 Sonic Society members and friends who attended the opening reception of the exhibit, about 10 examined all the cases and read all the labels. The other 190 headed straight for the Benjamin Franklin rum punch. Uh, Reason number two. It's been a few years since Harvard has put on a music exhibit outside the music library. Large, splashy exhibits are noticed by members of the library and university administrations. A music exhibit will draw favorable attention to the music library, and perhaps to the music librarian, and result in a more sympathetic hearing at budget time. Another footnote, uh, as it happened, a new director of the university library was named at Harvard just two days before the exhibit opened. And in what was surely his first librarianly act, turn down an invitation to the opening reception. Reason number... He was going out of town. (laughs) Incidentally, his wife teaches music. It couldn't be better. Reason number three, past donors and potential donors to the library must be reminded that their gifts not only further scholarship, but are also valued and appreciated. When we exhibit music materials proudly and point out their importance in the annotations we subtly encourage further gifts to the music collections at Harvard. In this connection, you'll notice that the annotation always includes the donor's name or the funding source. You can also exhibit material that's only on deposit in your library if the owner has no objection in hopes that perhaps the owner will be influenced to convert the deposit into a gift after seeing it displayed so prominently. And reason number four... From time to time, colleagues in other Harvard libraries need to be reminded that music materials are important. By asking my colleagues to lend music items from their collections for a major exhibit at the prestigious Houghton Library, the, college's, the college library's repository for rare books and special collections, these colleagues are subtly having their consciousnesses raised. As a result, too loud. Well, I don't need this. <laughs> Turn it off. As a result, they may, for example, finally start uh, cataloging that old collection of school songbooks that was donated to the education library in 1898, or they may finally even turn it over to the music library. Now, if the last three of these reasons seem a bit self-serving, let me assure you that the main factor in this case was indeed an external one, the Sonic Society meeting. I'm glad to report that the exhibit has already benefited scholarship in American music by bringing to the attention of a Roger Sessions scholar the composing copy of the first symphony that Sessions himself insisted had been destroyed. That was part of the Nadia Boulanger collection. A more general benefit has been that a large number of scholars in specific areas of American music have been made aware of collection strengths at Harvard in their own and in related areas of study. Once I had decided to mount an exhibit and reserve the dates at the Houghton Library, I made up some ground rules. And if you'll allow me to present you with just one more list of four things, I'll tell you what my ground rules were. I hasten to add that while by and large I tried to follow these rules, I also broke every single one of them. Rule number one, this was going to be a classy exhibit. Each item would have to earn its way in by possessing one or more important traits that merited attention. Generally speaking, I was looking for items that were not merely representative of something, but were also interesting in their own right. Rule number two, no cheap shots. It would have been a cinch to go to Houghton Library's collection of over 200,000 pieces of American sheet music and pick out 60 colorful, entertaining covers illustrating almost anything you could name. For this exhibit, however, sheet music covers, as we all know and love them, would be banned in Boston. But just to show that I could if I wanted to, I did fill a separate case away from the exhibit proper with sheet music covers depicting local scenes. Rule number three, no single focus. The exhibit would aim for broad coverage and for variety, with Americana as the only unifying theme. Of course, no one exhibit could cover all aspects and periods of American music and music in America, particularly in light of rule number four, which was that all materials would come from Harvard libraries with as wide a representation of libraries as possible. Not surprisingly, the Houghton Library eventually accounted for over half of the 64 items in the exhibit, Excuse me. and the music library contributed another 15. But I also managed to find nine items in the theater collection, three in the Divinity School Library, and one each in the archives, business school library, and the Schlesinger Library on the history of women in America. If there's time at the end, ask me about looking for Americana in the East Asian Library. (laughs) I did. (laughs) Those were the ground rules that defined the scope of the exhibit, and armed with them, I began my search for 60 to 70 items that would fill... Ten Flat Exhibit Cases at Houghton. The handout that you, I hope, received... Uh, did, did you? You didn't. The handout that you are about to receive um, reproduces all the labels in the exhibit, including case titles. You'll find that the annotations... You don't have to read it now, actually. You don't need it in order to understand this lecture. Uh, um, you'll find that the annotations are as brief as I could possibly make them, They aim to tell the educated layperson one or two important facts, preferably things that are not readily seen by looking at the items. And I deliberately leave a lot for viewers to discover for themselves because I want them to become actively engaged in the exhibit. Now I'd like to illustrate some principles and practices that I followed in order to make the Musical Americana exhibit as cogent, interesting, and informative as I could. I'll try to avoid telling you things that you can get from reading the handout, Though I'll be saying some things that appear self evident. And I guess we should turn the lights off. Boy, it really works. Beginning with uh, something that, that appears self evident for each item, find the best page opening to show. The Bay Psalm book was monetarily the most valuable item in the exhibit, and the only one that I was sure from the start would be included. Um, you, you can you handle the focus? I modern equipment f- floors me. <clears throat> right away with the bass Songbook, I had a problem. There's a reference to music that I wanted to display, but it's in the introduction, and the pages that contain it are lacking in Harvard's copy. So I opened to an interior page that was typographically interesting, and that happened also to include the word musician. And I think that the eye automatically gets to it because you're, you're drawn to this decorative uh, um, uh, title, the second book, Psalm 42, the chief... To, if you read anything on the page, you read, you read the word musician. There we go. Billings' New England psalm singer contains a picturesque title page engraved by Paul Revere. This is not it. It was long I mean, this is Billings, but this isn't the title page. It was long assumed that Revere had engraved the plates used to print the book. That page, alas, also was missing from Harvard's copy. But page two of the work includes pieces bearing the names of two familiar Massachusetts towns, Brookline and Nantucket. It also includes at the foot a note by Billings that has helped convince some scholars that Billings himself engraved the plates. Uh, I hope you won't conclude from this that Harvard's libraries contain only defective copies. In looking for the right pages to display, try to find pages that are visually interesting. The Tate and Brady Psalter contains only a few pages of music but these diamond-shaped notes look unusual, and even some knowledgeable music people are surprised to learn that they were ever used in America. The martyr's tune at the lower right, you see that? It, it, doesn't, it doesn't look in focus from here, but yeah. I'm sorry, I, I, won't, I won't mention the word focus again. The martyr's tune at the lower right shows up again in Thomas Walter's Grounds and Rules of Music, here in a three-part setting. Notice that someone has decorated some of the initial letters with ink dots. At the upper left, we find a setting of the universally known Old Hundredth Tune, which illustrates another exhibit practice, and that is to include some familiar things. The more esoteric the material, the more viewers will welcome any name, title, or melody that they recognize. Now, speaking of esoteric, this edition of John Tufts' book on psalm singing contains an odd kind of notation that uses psalmization syllables arrayed on a staff. I'm not sure if you can see it from where you're sitting, but there are the letters M-L-F-S, standing for Mi-La-Fa-Sol, and they are put in the places where the note heads would be if if these were notes. And if you see on the right-hand page... Uh, you see Psalm 100 and knowing the tune of Psalm 100 actually makes it possible for us to read this notation and makes the experience of looking at this page more meaningful. The two most recognizable names in colonial New England church history are those of Cotton Mather and his father Increase Mather. The son's name is modestly omitted from the title page even though he wrote the book, but the father's name is given twice on the facing page The configuration of this page opening favors us in another way. It allows us to avoid blank pages. They're uninteresting, uninformative, and they take up valuable space. The title page of this book, Thomas Sims' Reasonableness of Regular Singing, faces that dreaded blank page. And that gives us more incentive to open to this interior page and let viewers browse in the text of this the first music treatise published in America. And that brings us to another principle, excuse me, let me go back a second, whoop. Uh, Visual considerations must be put aside when the content warrants. Most viewers would judge that a typical interior page of 18th century text looks pretty dull. Don't forget most viewers are not bibliophiles, fortunately, I guess. Six or eight items like this one in an exhibit case can kill your audience. (laughs) As it happens, all the items we've looked at so far did come from only one case, which also included this last item, Daniel Bailey's Psalm Singer's Assistant. They're all related to psalmody in colonial New England and form an easily comprehensible unit in the exhibit. Providing a structure for the viewer is an essential part of mounting a good exhibit. The case titles, like chapter headings in a book, mediate between the broad topic of the exhibit, in this case Musical Americana, and the narrow focus of each individual item. The least imaginative organization is chronological, and it doesn't always work either. For example, one of the other items in the Harvard exhibit from that same period, the colonial period, is this New York City playbill, which is of interest to us because it alludes to musical performances between the acts of a play. Yes, it would have made an interesting contrast to include it with the psalmody stuff, but the scope of the case would have been broadened then, to Music in Colonial America, and only one secular non-New England title would have drawn an inaccurate picture. This playbill turned out to fit in quite comfortably with some other theater items from the colonial and federal periods, such as this playbill of 1800 from a theater in Portland, Maine. I was surprised to learn that culture had found its way that far up the coast that early, and I hope that viewers would notice that too, though I suppose we might quibble as to whether a performance of the Ballad Opera, Hob in the Well, also known as Flora, constitutes culture. It's usually better to let the subject matter suggest its own organization than to try to impose an artificial structure based on bibliographic considerations. The theater angle of this pamphlet of comic opera lyrics by Royal Tyler will be much more meaningful to most people than the libretto angle or the fact that it was the first such publication in this country. You can cheat occasionally if you don't do so too blatantly. This newspaper concert announcement found its way in with the same group of theater items. Because of its presence in the exhibit case, I was careful to title the case Music in the Theater, which is where this concert took place. <laughs> it's, it's okay not to find out everything there is to know. <laughs> It's okay not to find out everything there is to know about each item in your exhibit. Identifying the newspaper from which this was clipped would have taken more time than I had available. This New York playbill bears an intriguing few words in a contemporary handwriting. It now reads with the additions, by particular desire of President George Washington on Monday evening, January 9th, 1797. Did the president actually attend this performance of the comic opera Lock and Key? Was he in fact still president on January 9th? When was John Adams inaugurated? Who would have written in the additional information, and why? There may be a fascinating story here, but I couldn't take the time to try to follow it up. Manuscript additions to printed works are not always quite that dramatic. Often they consist of an owner's name, a dedication, or just scribbling. This title page of Rainer Taylor's The Ethiop has been extensively marked up in pen and pencil by several different hands, much more so than you can actually see on the slide. <clears throat> While the damage to the printed page is undeniable, I feel that the manuscript editions manuscript drive home to the viewer the role that printed material plays in society. In this Handel and Haydn Society program, Uh, for an 1817 concert, we find the names of the singers at the performance inserted in pencil in the margins. Someone interlineated this copy of William Henry Fry's opera Leonora with an Italian translation. That doesn't seem strange until you consider that this was done for a New York performance of an American opera composed to a libretto in English, there is a cut written in at the head of the right-hand page, and if you look carefully in the, in the outer margin on the right, you can see the holes and rust marks left by a straight pin that was used to pin the cut pages together. My colleague Roger Stoddard at the Houghton Library, who taught one of the courses here earlier this summer, recently put together an entire exhibit of marks in books. It was a real orgy of bibliographic trivia, and not-so-trivia, as a matter of fact. In spite of what I said earlier about organization, bibliographic matters can be very interesting and informative, do I dare say otherwise, in these surroundings. So not to be outdone in such matters by Roger Stoddard, I included this example of an unusual printing practice. Two pages of music were engraved head-to-head on each plate, separated by a rule. The printed sheets were subsequently torn apart at the rule. They were not cut into pages. If you look very carefully at the uh, top of the left-hand page, you can still see the rule that was used to divide the the page. (coughs) This exhibit item, (coughs) excuse me, exemplifies my remark, and its annotation, I should say, exemplifies my remark earlier about leaving some things unsaid. The annotation is exactly 14 words long and describes in very brief uh, the printing process. It informs the viewer that the work is previously unlocated. It gives a bibliographic reference, a wolf number, and identifies the item as a piano tutor. I do not remark on the author, George K. Jackson, whom the, or the compiler of the collection, whom Americanists here will recognize <coughs> excuse me, as a central figure in early Boston musical history, on the pretentious Italian title of the publication, "Irudimenti da Musica, which is misspelled in the bargain, or on the version of Yankee Doodle that was then current. Also bibliographically interesting, are these two states, or are they issues or, or printings or, or maybe they're editions, of another patriotic song, Hail Columbia? Comparisons like this can lead viewers to notice features they might otherwise overlook. Here, are the identical parts of the two pages. Is, is that really in focus? I, yeah? All right. Okay. It's a bad angle? I've got a bad angle. Oh, okay. Here, the identical parts of the two pages cancel each other out, and the eye is drawn to the illustrations. If you take the trouble to sing through Freedom Triumphant, you'll recognize that it's the melody of Anacreon in Heaven. That may not help you if you don't recognize the title, but you know this piece. And that the musical text is full of mistakes, such as you'll find in the very second measure. I'll just sing the beginning of this. Bum, 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 okay? And that is, that is a mistake because it doesn't appear that way anywhere else, not even in the repeat you can compare this with at least a portion of of this extremely curious publication that includes the same melody together with three different sets of words, the Battle of the Wabash, Anacreon in Heaven, and the Star-Spangled Banner under the title Fort McHenry. Perhaps even more interesting is the chance to compare an author's manuscript with a published edition of the same work. This is Samuel Francis Smith's autograph of my country, "'Tis of Thee." There's actually a piece sliced out in the middle and the two parts are, are sewn together, suggesting that there may have been some, uh, some additional verses in the middle at one time. Notice that earlier crossed out versions of several phrases are still legible. For example, in the final stanza, long may our land de- uh, delight, which was changed to be long may our land be bright. The first sheet music edition varies from the autograph in punctuation, such as the exclamation point inserted after the words, My country, and in the very last line, which reads as we know it, Great God, Our King, in place of the original, Our God, Our King, in the autograph. Let's look at another autograph manuscript of a patriotic song, The Words to the Battle Hymn of the Republic. What we have here is not a working copy, but a text written out by Julia Ward Howe on request almost 40 years after it had been created. To me, the true value of this item is a sentimental one, and we shouldn't overlook sentimental value to draw the viewer's interest in an exhibit. These pressed leaves are left just where I found them in this 1820 copy book belonging to one Abby Mason, whose signature appears in the lower margin. It's a bit unfair to classify these memoirs of composer Mabel Daniels under the rubric Sentimental Value, but let's face it, it's not great literature. Let me quote just a bit of this page, although it does have interesting stuff in it, I I must say, and that's why it was in the exhibit. Uh, It was late July of the same year when I took that memorable trip to California with the Chadwicks, and then further down... On arriving at Los Angeles, we went at once to the Hotel Alexandria. Whom should we suddenly run across in the lobby but the Karl Mooks? It was a del- exclamation point. It was a delightful surprise. Quote, we surely must dine together. End quote. They cried simultaneously. <laughs> A nice companion to the Daniels is this group photograph in which she appears third from right. This is quite a group of luminaries. Uh, Walter Piston, John Alden Carpenter, Nadia Boulanger, Roy Harris, Serge Kuczewicki, Jean Francais, and Edward Burlingame Hill, all in one photo. I was able to pinpoint the occasion that brought them together by focusing on the one unknown person in the picture, Zlatko Balokovic, the fourth from the right. And just as I suspected, a quick check of Boston Symphony Orchestra programs revealed that he was the violinist who premiered Carpenter's Violin Concerto on March 3rd and 4th, 1939. And this picture must have been taken at Symphony Hall just... I would, if I had to guess, I would say it was after the, the, uh, the uh, Friday afternoon performance uh, or perhaps after the Saturday night performance on the way to the, the reception at some wealthy Bostonians afterwards. A few pictures in an exhibit of mostly text and music gives the viewers a change of pace. This serene lithograph of cornetist and band leader Frank Johnson shows symbolically that he was also a composer. If you look under his left elbow, you'll see some uh, manuscript music and uh, a pen in an (coughs) inkstand. Perhaps one reason that this portrait is so lifelike is that it was copied from a daguerreotype. Patrick S. Gilmore, the famous band leader whose name is invoked by Harold Hill in Meredith Wilson's Music Man, appears in a photograph that is actually mounted on the cover of a piece of sheet music, a practice I hadn't seen before. Despite my sheet music prohibition, I had to include the first lithograph music title page, which happens to depict Anthony Philip Heinrich composing at the violin while sitting on the porch of his log house. I'm not making this up. There it is. The young woman in this picture is presumably sitting on the porch of the Brighton Beach Music Hall. I must admit that this is one of the items that did not make it into the exhibit entirely on the strength of its research value, but it is colorful, and it has a companion piece showing uh, showing two items that are linked together, and if you do that, you can strengthen both of them. You're now looking at the program for the week of June 23rd to 29th, 1913, and here is a contract with Ina Clare for the same week. Is there anyone here old enough to remember that name? Thank you, because I did. Uh, Ina Clare, this is her contract for that week, and it calls for the payment of $1,000, which is quite a lot of money for that time, for 14 performances of, quote, singing and impersonations, end of quote. This is, I know, hard to see. It's an illustration of a scene, but this is this is exactly the quality of the original. It's uh, a scene from a Yiddish musical, *The Goldene Kalle, or The Golden Bride, and it's of particular interest because we also have a manuscript copy Uh, of the conductor's score of this work I was glad to be able to include something in a foreign alphabet to remind viewers that American music needn't be in English this pair of letters from Charles Martin Loeffler who's a composer and also uh, an instrumentalist in I think he was a violinist I'm not sure does anybody know in, um, in the Bo- well, he was a violinist then, since nobody knows, in the Boston Symphony Orchestra, uh, to Wilhelm Garricka, who was the uh, conductor, is kind of odd in that the first one is in German, in perfectly good German, and the second one, written uh, about a year and a half later, is in perfectly excellent English. And I don't know whether uh, Garricka didn't know, or, or Loeffler assumed that Garricka wouldn't understand English the first time, and figured after a year and a half he had learned it. The second one incidentally is his letter of resignation from the orchestra thanking Garricka for doing all his performances and and uh, saying it's been a great pleasure and and he wants to devote more time to composing. (coughs) Another pair of letters shows us an extremely polite John Cage asking whether reprinting the full text of some E.E. Cummings poems would satisfy the poet's requirements and it also shows us a curt business-like Cummings replying that it, indeed it would. <coughs> this final pair of items highlights the important collaboration between Leonard Bernstein and Jerome Robbins on the ballet Fancy Free. The chewed-up page on the left contains Bernstein's penciled outline for the music. The typescript is Robbins' scenario. Perhaps the only thing better than a composer's outline for helping us understand the compositional process is an autograph working manuscript. This is one of many draft versions of Nuns of the Perpetual Adoration, a setting of a text by Ernest Dawson that might have been appropriate this this afternoon with your bell ringing, Suki. (laughs) Uh, Penciled by E.B. Hill in a small notebook. The rule of thumb for autograph manuscripts is the messier the better. Roger Sessions obliged us by using colored pencils in this first symphony manuscript that, as I mentioned earlier, had been thought lost. Really looks blurry to me, but maybe it's... (laughs) Well, it really, yeah, no, well, okay. So anyway, as I said, uh, the messier the better. And Edgar Varese does even better here with uh, Integral, which I understand there are manuscripts of all over the world. <laughs> Little pieces, you know, two, three pages. Manuscripts prepared by the composer for the publisher's use give us one definitive version of a work. And notice I did not say the definitive, or because as any, many of you know, most of you should know, uh, there are many definitive versions of any, any one work. Randall Thompson was extremely meticulous in making his wishes known to the engraver. This may actually look messy to the naked eye, but if you examine it closely, you'll actually find every I dotted and every T crossed twice. Manuscripts of theater or movie music that are specially marked for performance offer insights into those media. This is the conductor's short score for Thomas Baker's 19th century melodrama, Under the Palm. And here is the hospital scene that opens reel two of a 1940s B picture, Devil Bat's Daughter. I couldn't resist that title. (laughs) Music is by Alexander Steinert. Works that are not available elsewhere form an important part of an exhibit. This autograph of a 1926 piano sonata by Walter Piston is the only manifestation of this work known to exist. A few touches of very local interest can be worked in, but make sure the items are really worthwhile or you'll be charged with local chauvinism. These are the early records of the Pairian Sodality at Harvard, the oldest still extant instrumental music organization in the United States. And these are the records from the very first, uh, the organizational meeting and beyond for, for quite a number of years. The inscription... At the left reads, quote, Library, tenth of december, seventeen eighty three, received from the author this and another copy, for which a receipt is given of this date. James Winthrop, Librarian. Uh, James Winthrop Lib is what it actually says. End quote. The author is Andrew Law, and the copies were deposited under the terms of the Massachusetts copyright law then in effect. The printer and publisher Isaiah Thomas presented this copy of his Worcester collection of Sacred Harmony to Harvard. I opened it to Chester which has become the unofficial anthem of the Sonic Society. The Worcester collection established movable type music printing in the United States though it was not nearly the first book to use the process. In fact this is thought to be the first book. This is a collection of sacred songs, mostly words, but uh, enough music, published in Germantown, Pennsylvania. This seems like a good time to mention an idea that I considered and then rejected. I thought it might be interesting to group a variety of notations together in one exhibit case and comment on the printing processes. Oh, call it something like the, the shape of the American printed note, some such thing. Um, besides the relief cut, diamond notation that you saw earlier, I found the 1767 Metrical Psalter published by the Reformed Dutch Church in New York, which uses movable-type diamond notes and looks for all the world like its European counterparts, except that it's in English, and it's actually a very lovely translation. A group on American notation would, of course, have included Little and Smith's Easy Instructor, the work that popularized Shape Notes. Uh, again, it was not the first work to use shape notes. The phonographic harmonist not only has a colorful title, but illustrates one of the many experimental notations that try to make music reading accessible to everyone. Uh, I, this is a little hard to see, but if you can read semaphore signals, you can probably sight-read this. I decided that the notation angle did not justify breaking up the early Somini group and that most of these items would in fact end up in one case anyway. The final group of items that I want to show you consists of what I call the firsts. A survey exhibit of this sort is going to include a lot of items that are the first this or the first that, and we've already seen quite a few. Some I mentioned, some you'll, you'll see if you look in the annotations. You are looking at the first American periodical devoted to publishing music. On the right is the first, is a title page of the first secular music published in the United States. Selection of the most favorite Scots tunes uh, by uh, Reinagle. It is bound in a musical commonplace book that contains many Reinagle prints. The book belonged to Martha Washington's daughter Nellie who studied music with Reinagle. Here is the first orchestral score printed in the United States. One of the co-publishers of the Massachusetts magazine in which this fold-out appeared was in fact the same Isaiah Thomas that uh, was mentioned earlier. H. W. Pilkington compiled the first music dictionary to be published in the United States. This beautiful untrimmed copy in its original binding, once the property of Beethoven biographer A.W. Thayer, turned up in the music library basement at Harvard among duplicates to be disposed of. Now you're looking at the first American periodical devoted to writings about music, the Euterpead. the the dark stains show how the pages were folded for delivery to the subscriber, Dr. Alden, whose name is written in at the top. This probably looks very familiar. Uh, It happens to be Lowell Mason's very first of what seems like an endless number of published collections. And finally, an item that is associated with a first the rare New York playbill advertising, quote, down near the bottom, Mr. Dan Emmett's new and original plantation song and dance, Dixie's Land. Dixie, that is. This one poster gives us a wealth of information about minstrel shows, distasteful as the whole topic may be for us today. I purposely avoided till now using the words rare, unique, and important to describe items in this exhibit. There is a sense in which every item in our libraries is rare, unique, and important. One of the most rewarding tasks One of our most rewarding tasks as librarians is discovering those qualities in our materials and transmitting them to our public. It's also a task that teaches us humility when we realize that hardly any of the items that we feature in our exhibits would have been deemed worthy of such honor by the people who produced them. Lorenzo da Ponte published this libretto so that his audience at the Richmond Hill Theater in New York could read the words in Italian with an English translation on the facing pages. Roger Sessions wrote this letter to violinist Louis Krasner to discuss some technical matters in the performance of Sessions' Violin Concerto. And Abiel Howe, a minister in Methuen Mass, collected these hymns for his personal use. I began this talk with a list of four goals that I felt librarians should have in mind when they mount exhibits. I'd like to close with a quick assessment of the Harvard exhibit in terms of these goals. First, I think we succeeded in advertising our holdings to some of the people who should be made aware of the collection, American music scholars who are members of the Sonic Society. Second, we publicized recent acquisitions a bit. Third, We educated our patrons, at least to the extent that they were willing to take the time to look and to read. And fourth, we educated the librarian. My ignorance of many aspects of American music, especially New England psalmody, has been reduced slightly, and I even learned a new word, metempsychosis. Let me read you one verse of The Learned Pig from this publication, The Theatrical Songster, Published at Boston in 1797, and it's the verse in the middle of the right hand page. A punning philosopher was standing by, who Pythagoras' doctrines held, by the by, very gravely exclaimed, I can easily trace a metempsychosis in that pig's face. Pig is but a name, and man is but the same. And in transmigration, if I am not mistaken, that learned pig must be, by consanguinity, a lineal descendant of the great Lord Bacon. (laughs) Falal Diral. Thank you very much.